Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Vikingology, the art and science of the Viking Age. Today, I'm really excited to have Octavia Randolph, best-selling author, focused on the Viking Age. She's joining us from the island of Gotland, off the coast of Sweden. Welcome, Octavia. Thank you so much, Terry and CJ. It's a delight to be here with you today. Great to meet you. Thank you. So to kick things off, uh, the question I usually like to start with when it comes to people who are more on the art side of things, such as authors, artists, etc., why the Vikings? How did we how did we get into that period of time? What led you down that path as opposed to say the ancient Celts or the the Romans? Uh I want to say something at the onset, which will help frame the way I look at that word. Uh, I, I write a, a series of historical fiction books. It's an 11 book series right now set in the late ninth century. The first book uh, is set in the year 871, the year when an extraordinarily abled and capable young man by the name of Alfred became the King of Wessex. Um, and it the, this, the series is a a series of uh, it's a it's a multi generational family saga. It takes place both in Angoland, Denmark, and here on the island of Gotland. It is over two million words at this point. In that text, I use the word Viking exactly once, <laughs> and I oftentimes uh, say this to people because modern people are not aware how unusual that term actually is and was. It very, very rarely appears in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and in any Old Norse annals. It's a very unusual word. And when I use it in my one instance, it is a young Viking warrior who after his first kill says to himself in a quiet moment, this is what it is to go a Viking. So again, not as a people group, not an identifier as a people group, but an identifier as an activity. So I'm oftentimes gently correcting people and guiding them towards the term Dane or, or Norse or Svir, if they were Swedish. Um, of course, we, we all are familiar uh, students of, as we are students of the, of the period of the way the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle refers to um, the invaders, which is, the great army, uh, the Danes, or our favorite, the heathen horde. So again, the word Vikings almost never used. So I'm really writing in the circle of Cairdan Saga about the formation of the English people. And that's an expansive topic, uh, but I, I want to keep the focus really on the fact that that term Although it's a useful shorthand, and I certainly do use the term Viking in my marketing materials because it conveys so much. It's so concise. People immediately can place the era and the general activity. But actually, in my books, I use it one time. So that gives you kind of an overview of what I write about and how I approach the era. I love that. So it's funny because with my books, I did the exact same thing. <laughs> it's the the it's mentioned once very, very early in my series to go a Viking. Right. So and it's they don't refer to themselves And in the historical north. I mentioned because I the, um, focus more on the west coast of France. So I use I use Frankish annals and like in the Anna, uh, the Annal d'Angoulême, for example, they they uh, refer to them as Vesfaldingi, men from Vestfold. Right. And I and so there's a more regional self-identification right. going on and that we can much see. Much more nuanced. Much yeah. more nuanced. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I appreciate that precision because it's true. We and I think Terry from the historian side, the nomenclature of the word Viking is is a bit of a prickly perch as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, you know, the lore that we've come to sort of build around that word, sorry, I always talk with my hands, I don't know why, um, is that it's, you know, it's pretty recent, right? It's like probably 19th century forward, but, you know, we do know that it it does appear in, in some sources in the past. Yeah. And so but when it, you think it, about the etymology of it words, means, you know, creek, it, it means, creek. you know, a, a, a creek and a bay. Yeah, so right. 
right know, give me the geography yeah. the word vic yeah. is a is a real word right but, yeah know. but also as the as the profession as people uh even who is that i think even adam of bremen like you know the the the, the germans what do they call them the, the ashmen but that they call themselves viking i mean so it, it appears and yes. and we we understand what roughly what they mean by that now and as you say right it's a job description it's not an ethnicity it doesn't refer to a group of people per se um I like that a job description. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, exactly. And, but I think it's always interesting, you know, with the etymology of words historically, is that we come to think of it in a certain way, but then you know it's much more important to understand, like, well, did they know of that word back then? And if so, what did they mean by it? And so this is, I think, the consensus, at least in the historian community, is that we we have an understanding that what they meant by it was basically, you know, this job this thing that people did, which, you know, a lot of people will say is probably akin loosely to. And, 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 and much of the time, a very part-time job, yes. because right. most of these men were farmers and fishermen, and right. it was a part-time summer job activity right. for most of them. Right, right. So, so where do you come from originally? I am American of English descent, and therefore I have a very strong connection to English history. Um, my fascination with the Anglo-Saxon age really came from um, the glorious artifacts left behind, um, the contents of rooms 39 through 42 at the British Museum, uh, the Sutton Hoo treasure, I see you smiling, the yeah. Sutton Hoo treasure, uh, the Tableau treasure, um, Ethel Wolfe's ring, you know, all of those, you know, wonderful artifacts that we have, which are so uh, vivid and so inspiring. And, um, and of course, on the North side, you have equally glorious things as well. Uh, so, so it was really the physical attraction as, as well as the very, exciting story about, you know, the, the collapse of the heptarchy and, you know, this one young man um, who really kind of rose uh, uh, rose to the challenge. Uh, Alfred does figure in my novels. He's, he's a, a, a secondary and tertiary character and my characters interact around him. Um, but um, it, it, it's such a pivotal time in history. It's such an exciting time that uh, it, it, it really called to me to kind of express it. And, and um, that was the fascination. And the fascination, you know, continues. And again, as we continue to find more amazing objects, um, you know, and which deepen our knowledge year by year, uh, there's endless resources for us for our fascination. Yeah, I mean, CJ and I have said that, I think, several times, right, on this on podcast, as far as, you know, me being a historian, it's kind of text-based, although I have a background in the arts, and so I'm very keenly aware of sort of the the, the nature of, you know, objects, right, as as it, it, the things that are, quote-unquote, documents as well. It doesn't have to be things that are are written, but that, you know, there we have written sources that people can pour over again and again and again, and every person that's new to it, of course, brings new eyes to it, but it's probably, there's, you know, only so much where you can go with that, but as new archaeology comes into play and newer things, you know, that we've never seen before get dug up or more modern scientific testing being done to, uh, you know maybe on skeletal remains and things like that that can all of a sudden really you know that that's kind of where the action is at right now indeed yeah i uh, just wanted to add you know in contrast to to uh, the viking age scandinavians you know the uh, england at the time or what we refer today to as england uh the very early on i think we had the venerable bead who who mentioned the gens and glorum, the English peoples? There was a, a certain identity uh, there present there that you know, going back to the whole discussion on Viking Age Scandinavians, that we doesn't appear to be consistent in Scandinavia. I just had that thought, so I just want to dangle that out there. Uh, so, with your books, so where kind of where did you start on the subject, and then where has it taken you? Because I know as a as a, a writer myself. I started with one subject and then it just kind of opened a couple of doors for me down the road where I just kind of kept, but the, the uh, research and experience of it took me in a, a direction I wouldn't have imagined at the beginning of the project, right? Um, and so you mentioned you started with the formation of, of England, Alfred, and the, then here you yep. are chatting with Very us. Very true, yeah. Chatting the, with the, us in Gotland. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and points east. Right? Yeah. Um, so uh, the 
the the the story of the the circle of Caradon saga is is really a a story between the a deep friendship between two young women. Um, the titular character Caradon is half half Welsh and half Saxon. She's only fifteen years old in the first book. Now in the eleventh book, she's forty. Um, so the, it's, it's her and and her dear friend um, Alfwyn. Uh, who is a Saxon noblewoman, and, and Alphen is 17 when they meet. And the male characters that they interact with, many of whom are Dane, because this, you know, the, the body of the first few books really does take place in Wessex and in Lindesay. And so um, it, 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 it is definitely the point of view of the women living through this extraordinarily tumultuous time. Um, the the theme in unspoken theme throughout the entire book is examination of the question, who is my enemy? Um, and how these young women are interacting with, you know, men who should have been their enemy, the Danes, and so on and so forth. So it it began there and it began, you know, fairly locally. However, in uh, 1999, when I embarked on an extensive research trip through the Nordic lands, um, I one of the my second stop was was Gotland, and the reason that Gotland was so important is it contains unique treasures which do not exist anywhere else, and that is the standing painted stones, from which. We have learned more about Old Norse life than we have from any other source uh, because of the way in which they have been decorated. We've learned more about ships and rigging and steering oars and hairstyles and fashions and so much about uh, saga stories. And there's so there's so many things we cannot interpret uh, from that era. But as it turns out, because Gotland is was first peopled 8,000 years ago, it's extremely rich in uh, Bronze Age finds as well. Uh, and some of the standing stones are very early and quite magnificent. And then they move right through to, you know, past the point of Christianization when these carved, beautifully decorated stones then appear with crosses on them, runes, written runic inscriptions by crosses. Um, so I came to see those. And uh, it is quite an, an amazing fact and re really kind of hard to get your head around that in this small island, which is about 100 miles long and 35 miles wide, in the middle of the Baltic, over 700 silver hordes have been found. Mm -hmm. Over 700. There have been... Uh, tons of silver that have been found here. And uh, when I had arrived in September of 1999, the largest Viking Age board ever found had just been unearthed in, in July. And that is known as the Spillings Hoard. And the it's called the Spillings Hoard because that is the name of the farm that it was found on, on the north um, east coast of Gotland above a vic, above a bay, called Bogevik, and it consisted of 67 kilos of silver, 148 pounds of silver, and also a remarkably beautiful amount of very well-worked Slavic bronze. It was um, 20 kilos, 44 pounds of beautiful bronze work, which had been deposited under a farmhouse and these in, in three different caches, very close to each other, just a few meters away from each other. They were found by the farmer who owned who owns the farm, and he immediately called the, the county. Again, this was one of 700 hordes that's been found, and hordes are being found all the time. Hordes have been kicked out of the earth by bunny rabbits here. <laughs> there There's people felling trees. You know, silver has spilled out of the roots. It's just astonishing rich. And, you know, why is this? Um, Gotland was a uniquely peaceful place during the Viking Age. It had no king. It had no king. It had no warlord. 
Scotland was peopled by prosperous, clever, hardworking farmer traders. Its location, more or less in the middle of the Baltic, meant that it was a ideal destination for Silk Road trade crossing the Baltic and heading, you know, further west to the trading posts of Haithabu and Birka and Ribe. I mean, and so ships were, were landing here, they were taking on fresh supplies, and they were trading. The results of all of this meant that there was an amazing amount of silver coinage from the East. In the Spillings uh, hoard alone, there were 14,300 coins. Mm -hmm. There's been over 200,000 coins found here on Gotland. And by the way, more late Anglo-Saxon coins have been found here in Gotland than have ever been found in Britain. Think when about did, that. When more, did all, when did, oh, sorry, when did all that start? Is like 19th century archaeology or? Oh, no, it's been dug up much earlier than that. And who who know? I mean, we we have records, you know, like church records where the parson was out, you know, digging a grave and he came across this hoard and then, you know, melted it down for a, 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 a patent and a chalice. I mean, it has constantly been found over hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but the, the 14,300 coins that were found in the Spillings hoard, the largest silver hoard ever found on Earth, were almost all Arabian dirhams. And th this was money that was trade. You know, this was trading money and that was being poured into here. It It is... Um, perhaps significant that the farmstead in, in which the Spillings Horde was found appears to have been uh, the home and workshop of a smith. Of course, smiths were always prosperous members of any community um, and magical members of any community too, because they could control fire and iron and make useful implements and weaponry. So here was a, a very rich family who had deposited um, their, their savings uh, and it's just one of so many, 700, again, hordes that have been unearthed. Much treasure coming from the East as a result of the Silk Roads. So you see my fascination. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention that the island itself is very beautiful uh, and extremely varied. Uh, so it's there's so much here. And, and uh, a, a set of my characters end up living after volume three. Uh, book three, they end up living here on Gotland. So there's every single book has, you know, a, a portion of the activity which takes place here on Gotland as well. So. Yeah, it's uh, always been a fascinating, every time it comes up in a book, you know, like the, the Grobina colony, for example, which is in Latvia, Estonia. I always forget which one it yep. is. I think it's Estonia. Well, Estonia, Estonia yep. and somebody mm -hmm. can correct me. There you go. But uh, uh, distinctly um, at the beginning, you know, so they have different different ages of that settlement so the different time periods and the very early ones are distinctly gotlanders right so they were yes. the first really to start stepping eastward to to begin that trade right. so it's really we're talking about a focal point for the beginning of the viking age and then also a very important site throughout the entire viking age and, and even through the the high medieval period as well yeah. uh, i do have pictures that you sent us if you want yes. to go over those let's let's look at some of those because i i i know our listeners and viewers will be interested in in seeing some of the attraction here. Um, just to sort of begin at the beginning, uh, again, people have lived on Gotland for 8,000 years. Gotland is and always has been slowly rising out of the Baltic. 8,000 years ago, there was huge expanses of water covering the surface of much of Gotland. As the ice age melted and receded, and the aquifers were replenished, Gotland continues to rise out of the water. In fact, it gets larger every year. Um, it's very, very interesting that the, the, the creation story of Gotland and the first man on Gotland, a fellow whose name is Jelvar, whose grave you can visit, and I have many times, he lives at, he, he's buried in a boat shape, supposedly buried in, in one of the beautiful ship-setting graves on the East Coast, but the story of, of Chelver, which is in the Guta saga, uh, the foundational story of, of um, the, the Guts, the Gotlanders, is, is a fascinating one and really has to do, really refers to the topography and it coming out of the water. 
Scotland used to vanish every night under the waters and Shelver arrived and like Prometheus brought fire and that stopped it from sinking uh, under the waves. And he found, a, uh, he brought a wife with him or found a woman, perhaps Adam and Eve like. They had three sons and he divided Gotland into threes for these sons, administrative units, which still exist with the very center uh, quite precisely located, the, the town of Rulma is where the all thing was. Um, and it's it, it became later on in the 14th century, the site of a huge Cistercian monastery. Um, so that's always been a power center it, right in the very center. So you have a very, very long history here and more than 400 cairns, burial mounds from the Bronze Age which some of which are just enormous and in the center of these and and many of which have not been excavated yet but those that have been excavated typically will have this little uh burial chamber for for cremated remains in its heart there's a couple of the huge burial mounds which have been literally taken apart so you can enter them and see the inner structure of them because there's not just piles of stone one upon the other. There's, there was actually internal walls um, and, and sort of passages. And then a, a small stone coffin like this would be used for the remains. So uh, this would have been beautifully painted, as you can see. They, they were painted um, with lamp black, with you know charcoal and fixative gum fixatives. And you'll also see some red, I think, in my pictures, I'm not sure, but uh, which was, of course, iron oxide that was used. So the, 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 the painted stones here in Gotland were usually uh, red and black, sometimes traces of mineral yellow as well. This picture is from the our fabulous little museum here in Visby, the Gotland's Museum, the Fornsalen, and there's just the, the picture stone hall is, is um, jaw dropping. So the, the, this chieftain um, was likely cremated right on the site. And oftentimes at these huge burial mounds, you can see that cremation area is still blackened from fire. And he would have been burnt with grave goods. And be, because of course of the cremation process, very little survives, but small pieces of metal and things often have survived. Oftentimes sons or wives, other family members could have joined him in smaller mounds around. Infrequently, the mound was opened at some edge and uh, another one of these chambers placed. But I did want you to see um, how beautiful this is and, and how, uh, it, it, when you're walking in the woods, you will very oftentimes come upon a chamber. It won't be as beautifully decorated as this is. It will be worn away, but you'll come upon a small oblong in the woods, and you'll know, okay, this was a site of cremation uh, burial. So that is a, a, a really a lovely artifact from the uh, Bronze Age. So we can... When is the date on, on this one? So this would be the Bronze Age here was like 1800 uh, BCE to 500 BCE. Everything, of course, has shifted in the in the Nordic world. So things are things happen more slowly, and we got into um, the the time shifts were a little bit behind that of continental Europe. So this would be, you know, you know, sometime in the you know 1800 to you know 1800. Um, you know, before a common era, something like that could be could be earlier for sure. Okay, yeah, this is good because I know, you know, from uh, the American perspective too, and I've done work with you know, Nordic peoples, Nordic scholars, where, um, you know, contextualizing it for our audience in that, you know, even with the Vikings, um, for us, the, the quote unquote Middle Ages or medieval period is, you know, a period in which the Vikings are kind of smack in the middle. Whereas if you're a European, the, the Vikings come and then the medieval period starts after <laughs> them. So it's like, you know, try to try to at least right. go little clear for our audience right 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 in france it's the the moyenage is from the end of end of the the romans all the way to the renaissance so it's right. it, they they kind of do that broad sweep as well and right. the vikings which, are a very teeny tiny little bit in there which I, which i like the moyenage i think that's a lovely way to look at it i really do it's much more expansive 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do. I do want to jump in real quick at something that you mentioned just for our, our, our listeners benefit. There is, there's a study that came out in, I want to say 2019, I believe that, uh, that looked at, so one of the, the enduring mysteries that, that uh, archaeologists were trying to solve, and I think they had to work with geologists on this one too, was why the rising ocean levels in modern times hasn't been hasn't been affecting you know the the uh, the lowlands and the Netherlands and then in Denmark as well. Like they haven't been and, losing and northern land. Scandinavia, right? In North, mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it's because they figured out that it's because during the last ice age there was so much ice on the continent that the weight of it pushed all the ground yeah. down. That's and true. then, and then for the last ten thousand years, it's been it's been it's, rising. It's but feeding the it... aquifers, yes, and pushing right. it back up again. And, and it, yeah. lucky for us, you know. Right, here. and so that's why, like for example, Hedeby is inland fifty kilometers, where it used to be on the coast, because the land right. is actually rising, and it's keeping a pace with the the rising of the oceans right. from yeah. uh, global warming. Can we yeah, call it global warming yeah. still? <laughs> Climate well, change. <laughs> Let's please be honest. Yes, Haithabu, Hedeby, Beka, same thing happened there. And the same thing happened to our larger trading post, which was Paviken. Paviken is on the West Coast. It's just south of Visby. And it was a, a very prosperous lagoon in which which was well hidden, but but it had wonderful shipwrights there. We know there was a tremendous amount of ship building and ship repairing going on, which you can imagine if you'd weathered a difficult crossing across the Baltic and you're, you know, you'd been dismasted or your your mast lock had broken or the steering oar had broken, whatever, you know, to, to know that you could come to Paviken and have really skilled shipwrights repair your ship. Um, but that area now, Paviken, uh, which was the foremost trading post on the island, uh, is now uh, a bird sanctuary with very little water in it. I mean, there's just, just a small amount of water. It's fascinating because they have really unearthed, you know, the foundations of some of the buildings. But to to it, it very dramatically shows how much Gotland has risen out of the Baltic in the last 1,200 years. Yeah, and how fascinating that we we've just only figured this out in the last couple of years, and and but then embedded in their foundational narrative right yes. in Gotland yes. with their stories they had an awareness of it which is yes. incredible right yes it, it it is phenomenal i mean the story of, of chelver the first man they they completely nailed it you know that, that he he stopped this you know it's sinking beneath the water so uh, i i it's one of the really um, endearing things about the guta saga as brief as it is um mm. but it 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 is it is a wonderful foundation story so when since we're on geography, just I want to point of uh, interjection here, just a point of correction for our audience. So Grobina is in Latvia. Oh, uh, there we go. I see. I always get it backwards. <laughs> I always go for Estonia for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we, remember that those were very fluid um, uh, geographical areas in during the Viking Age as well. So I, I you know, that that the, the, these were sort of tribal people. I mean. The Prus, the Polony, um, you know, the Pomerani, all of these people and the Estonians, uh, you know, it was it there was a lot of fluidity. And yes. these modern uh modern borders certainly have changed quite a bit in the 20th century as well. Yeah, of so, course, especially in the post-war years. But absolutely. Just for the sake of modern people who may be googling the groping colony. Thank you. Estonia. Thank I you. get corrected on that all the time. I think in the future, I'm just going to avoid saying the modern country and just say on the coast of the Baltic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this this particular standing stone um, is one of many of the type. This is a little bit, um, this is from the early Iron Age, from the fifth and sixth century. There's many of these beautiful stones with this sun wheel depicted on it. And you you look at this and there's several wonderful examples in the Gotlands Museum. You look at it and you know to our eyes it's immediately suggestive of a shield. You know that you you really can understand how uh, men being confronted with these fantastic uh, stones with these beautiful sun wheels on them were inspired to paint their shields. So this axe-bladed shape is sort of the earliest of the standing stone. 
uh, I, again, there's uh, in mainland Sweden and, and Denmark and other places, there are carved stones and stones that were painted, but they're usually on living rock where these are carefully dressed stones, um, really carefully carved, beautifully painted and erected. They are not gravestones. They're more, uh, the later stones appear to be memorials uh, to, to people or to honor the gods. And these sun stones, these sun wheel stones really could have to do with the climactic crisis that appeared to have happened you know in the fifth century where possibly there was just a lot of volcanic debris uh, blocking out the sun and creating a lot of uh, uh, famine across uh, you know Europe and northern Europe and so this sun wheel motif is very popular at that but they're so elegant I, I just had to show you one of them the, just the beautiful creatures and the the delicacy of the the painting is so lovely. Are these um, actual in this museum, or are these reproductions? These are all real. These are all real. Most there's there's been over there are over four hundred picture stones that we have found. Some of them have been carted off to Stockholm, to the um, the State Museum there, but most of them are here. There are more being found all the time. They were incorporated into churches um, because very often the power places in which these stones were erected were sites in which, you know, uh, churches were then built. And there's even a few churches that have them into, you know, integrated right into the walls, you know, that there's a standing stone that's been used as a huge building stone right in, right in, the, in the walls or used as gravestones. Um, uh, some of them have been found upside down, used, you know, underneath the floors as flooring and so on and so forth. So there's, there's at least 400 that have been discovered and there's many more out there that we haven't found yet. So, yeah. How, how old is this one? This one is is an Iron Age st stone, so it's it's fifth century, sixth century, something like that, probably. I'm just really, yeah. I'm really floored by how pristine it looks. I mean, it's so yeah. clean. It doesn't look all. I mean, it's broken, but it's not. Yeah, you'd. I imagine for me, I would imagine something. You know, that this age to be to be a little bit more weather worn almost right like they it's, have it's been repainted really well. of course i mean yeah. you know they they, they, they they very few of them actually had you know real traces of of paint um so they have been repainted with ah, okay. charcoal and uh with the red oxide the ones that are painted in red but because a lot of them were in in fairly sheltered locations i mean they were sometimes they were just pulled inside the churches because they were significant they were important i mean you know the early christian ministries were were building the churches where there were people that would accumulate anyway and that places that were already considered to, to be powerful and sacred so very often these stones were um you, you can go to these you know our there, there was a huge uh, building uh, program undertaken a, around 1225 to 1275, a period of immense uh, wealth uh, for Gotland, and 100 small, beautiful limestone country churches were built. And in many of these churches, when you go to visit them, and I have visited all but three of them at this point, when you go to visit them, you'll see a standing stone there in the church cemetery. I mean, you, you just see, okay, the priest came and said, all right, this is already a place that people know and they gather here and it's a revered place. We're going to build a church here. And typically it would be like a stave church first, and then it would be replaced by a stone church. Oh, here we go. Okay. So here we are again in the Gotland's Forn Hall with me inserted for scale. This is um, just to give um, our viewers an idea of how large these stones are. I'm 175 centimeters, five foot nine. So this stone is immense. I mean, a lot of the stones are 10 and 12 feet tall. They're just huge. So this is another sun wheel. It's again, very, very elegant. It, you see the serpent or dragon uh, around the top and the serpentine characters, um, the tw twinned serpentine characters there. They're just stunning. Is that a little like, like a ship behind you? Like right behind you? That is a ship. Yeah. That is a ship. Yeah. That I mean, is a ship. 
It's so interesting, like this one and even the previous one as well. I used to teach the ancient world a few years ago, and we would look at some like Mesolithic art. I mean, it's some of this stuff looks very reminiscent of, you know, designs that you see cross-culturally in other places in, in other previous periods of time as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, the Gotlanders were known for their sailing skills. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, crossroads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so this particular stone, this is a famous stone, the Audre stone. This stone is a reproduction because the original has been carted off to Stockholm. But this is a very skillfully made reproduction. And I selected this picture because it shows the Audre church in the background. So it's very typical, small, Gotlandic early 13th century limestone church. Um, and this stone is, is fairly close to where um, the original was. So this is more typical of what we think of uh, a pictorial stone because there's so much going on here. You immediately, your eye is taken both to the ship and to Sleipner, Odin's, you know, um, eight-legged horse up at the top and uh, with the, a Valkyrie greeting um, either Odin uh, astride Sleipner's back or a slain warrior. Uh, the, the, the ship is beautifully rendered. Again, the, the fact that the sails appear to be depicted as that there were narrow strips of Lindsay Woolsey or uh, a hemp and linen combination uh, interleaved with each other for strength. You see the rigging really uh, carefully and so on. So, uh, there's there's just so much going on here. Uh, no inscriptions. Is this is just stories, uh, but a riot of wonderful pictures in a stone like this. And many of the stones are look quite similar to this and have this sort of um, wonderful detail and and a plethora of action in them. So. This is the Ardre stone. Right. And uh, just to point out the ship there, my, correct me if I'm wrong, Terry, uh, my understanding is before the Gokstad ship was unearthed, the this was it. This is what we had or historians had to inform us on the 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 ships, the long ships, right? Because they were written about in sources and, and uh, there were pictographs and chronicles and so forth that showed us uh, certain things, but this was essentially what was considered the most faithful reproduction of the ships until we actually found one in the ground. Right. Uh, and uh, and also I want to point out just this, I think this is really for William and Rainer's benefit. Uh, notice what they're wearing here on their belts. It's not axes. It's not saxes. It's not rocks. It's swords. Sword. <laughs> <laughs> so, to remind our audience, what was the best weapon that was when we had our episode with Rainer Oskarsson and William Short, you know, the number one weapon for Vikings was the rock. But here they're definitely displaying right. their swords, you know, well, quite conspicuously. Saxons used a lot of rocks as well, as yeah. we know, all those those young boys with their slings. Rocks were very effective to so soften up the troops, you know. So, right. so I, I won't, I won't cast aspersions on rocks. But you're absolutely right. These are elite mm -hmm. warriors. They have belted swords. Uh, just a just on a, a complete aside on the rock thing too. I was listening to David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about how we've essentially misinterpreted the whole David and Goliath battle because it turns out that the slingers at the time were would have complete a slinger would have completely outmatched a, a, a foot soldier in full armor right like he did a whole thing on it about how uh, many men were killed yes yeah i mean yeah a 14 year old boy i mean really when you when you really look at the shield wall the saxon shield wall and this is what you know we because they wrote about it we and we even have uh, depictions embroideries of this we we understand i mean there were very young boys there with their slings slinging rocks the lighter, uh, smaller men were throwing javelins, light throwing spears, and there were lots of archers. And that was mm -hmm. softening up the enemy uh, for the big, strong guys who were literally in the shield wall. So, you know, rocks play a big part yeah. in this. Yeah, uh, I just I heard that. And I was like, uh -huh. are very, yeah, missiles are very effective. You know, yeah, rocks. It's you know when yes. when all else fails, pick up a rock. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's the only thing at hand. Um, this is an outdoor museum, quite a lovely one. Um, 
just up north, sort of in the middle of the island, but up north called the Bunier uh, Open Air Museum. And this is an original stone. Again, it has been repainted. You can see it was broken and pieced back together. Again, I'm inserted for scale so you can see how huge it is. This particular ship is just magnificent. I love the roiling waves underneath it. Uh, you can see the curling, cresting waves underneath it, uh, the elaborate rigging. Um, and then there's some very interesting stories going on. The 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 panel. This is the the this mushroom shape or the phallic shape is the later shape that that these stones took, and you you see just with the head is that there is another small ship and there's a, a female figure standing uh, between it and a, a, a number of, of uh, men. Thank you. And this possibly could be the story of Hild, the abducted princess who is trying to mediate between her fathers and brothers who are coming to kill her abductors and the husband that she now doesn't want to be killed. I mean, she's really enacting the role of a peace weaver here. So this is thought that possibly this is the story of Hild, where this woman is between them and mediating, meeting um, this uh, armed force uh, and trying to mediate. And then above that, um, we have a scene of human sacrifice. Um, there is to the far left, just where the stone flares out, you see a sort of a, a, a member that is um, like a tree, a tree trunk bent down and that there is a man exactly there is a man being hung there so it's and it is a, a warrior in full uh kit and then there's uh right next to him there is a man who is a lying down on an altar sort of thing and about to be executed as well um so this is a, a scene of human sacrifice so, so do we know um, art historically, like, again, as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking back to like some of these other things that I used to teach about in these in, in the ancient world. I mean, going back into, you know, Sumeria, Egypt and all of that and the idea of what they call like these standards or friezes where you've got, you know, you can see that there's, you know, there's different scenes going on here. Right. And then and they're being played out in these, you know, horizontal spaces that have ground to each of them. So there's it, it's like this thing yeah. that we would we call continuous narratives. Like, is this all part of, uh, or believed to be all part of kind of one story, or do we have multiple things going on there, here? There, there are there are definitely repetitive themes. I mean, the story of Wayland the Smith is oftentimes depicted, and his being hamstrung and his revenge, the exploits of Odin. Um, you know, I think Hild appears in more than one. There's several wonderful stones in the museum which show uh, women driving wagons uh, apparently into the the underworld and being greeted by women uh, with drinking horns. You know, and those are those are particularly interesting because of the roles of of women there. Um, so there's and, and and again, there's many stories that we. That have been lost to us. I mean, that that nobody really can in, interpret. There's characters and things that just don't seem to make sense based on what we think the sagas were about, because so much has been lost. But and there's there no are, runes or anything. That's there's no inscription of any kind. There, there on these earlier stones, no. I mean, later on, when the stones are much more dedicated to um, men and women, and and erected at you know, at, at a Ford, for instance, or or um, a memorial stone for somebody who went away and never came back, then there will be a runic ins inscription. But on, on these, no. I think it's so interesting. I mean, we used to do this kind of experiment with my students where we'd look at, you know, some of these ancient objects like this that don't have any written text involved and then say, okay, you know, okay, we read these types of artifacts, or we can in a similar way to reading a text, it's just different, right? But like, if you're an alien, and you just landed, you know, and then you see this thing, it's like, hmm, okay, tell me, what is it you think you know about who these people were, right? And so it's like, okay, well, these people clearly like sailing in boats, uh, they clearly seem to have tamed horses, um, they like weapons or pointy things, you know what I mean? It's just sort of, mm -hmm. 
this really interesting experiment in in trying to just sort of suss out what it all is. And also even with, then with the cosmology too, because you don't really, you don't have a roadmap for saying, well, this is actually a, a deity of some kind, not, not an actual human being. So you're kind of mixing these things all together, um, but it just, yeah, it's just sort of really fun <laughs> to try to figure these people out just by this, right? Right. And, and Terry, there's such a, a correlation between, again, these 100 beautiful country churches that were, you know, built just a couple of hundred years after this, because many of them still remain with richly painted interiors, which are these narrative strips of the life of Christ. And I was at a church last week, which has an amazing story of the martyrdom of St. Margaret of Antioch, really, really detailed, quite gruesome, but, you know, from like 1280. And it was just there. And again, we, the, the, when in a preliterate age, how exciting it was for people to be able to see these things and piece together the story um, themselves or have someone who knew more uh, tell them the story. But, you know, it, it, it certainly, it's, it's so vivid. It's, it, sets, it sets the story in one's mind when you see it pictorially, powerfully depicted. Yes, exactly. Especially at this scale. <laughs> yes, especially. It's daunting. I mean, they are so huge and you will, you, you know, there's still some remaining in fields and so on forth that you can go and see. I think there's a, a 20, 15 or 20 that have been identified in fields and you can go to see them. Some of them you, you can still, if you stand with oblique light, like the sun is hitting, you can still see the, you know, the, the design carved on it. But it's 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 awe-inspiring to come up to them and find them there. And they most of them are just enormous like this. And and of course, when you think about how big they are, you also have to think how much of it is buried. Yeah, there's a tremendous right. amount of this buried to stay right. upright, yeah. you know. So, or also just think about how long it would have taken them to execute exactly, the whole thing. Exactly. Right. I mean, these were very expensive monuments. So I do want to point out, I'm I'm looking in at this, and I haven't um, stared at one of these with this much detail in a long time. Uh, but just noticing that most of these, you know, it's it's pictures or drawings of people, animals. And then conspicuously in the middle, there's just a symbol, just one, right? It's a Volknut. It's just okay. sitting there, but there's yeah. just one symbol. It's right on top of the sacrifice. Yeah. Do we know it's anything about the... why? <laughs> yeah. Whenever you see a sacrifice, you will see a Volknut just about always. Really? Okay. I didn't know yes. that. That's uh, yes. uh, uh, my understanding, Terry, was that Volknuts were not particularly Viking yeah. ish but i guess yeah. but here's here's one on a stone so i'm i i can i can send you several um several photographs of of gotland stones with vault nuts yes really yeah i think the issue with the uh in the kind of the modern interpretation by some groups of what the vault means uh yes is, is that we we don't actually know <laughs> what it, mm. uh so people have kind of co-opted it for whatever they want <laughs> Yeah, I think I remember reading something about it was associated with Odin or something. And, you know, there's a raven right there. So that would make sense. But yeah. Or those, I, I, those who have fallen in battle, sometimes people use it for that. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. But we but don't. I do find it interesting that it's there's a human sacrifice. There's a Vulcanet. And Octavia, you just mentioned that that's pretty common. So there's there's some kind of attachment to death, right? It was inevitable if you were a warrior, so it, you better picture it as, in a glorious style. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, I just want to point that out. I was like, oh, look, yeah. look what's yeah. there. And I I mean, that's this is an area that I have very, very no knowledge about. So I'm just asking questions. <laughs> uh, next one. Woo. Yeah, this again, this is just a very, very small portion of the Spillings Horde. It was uh, very badly eroded. Again, this is uh, 67 kilos, 148 pounds of silver buried in the earth. The, the earliest coin that was buried with all of these bangles and bracelets, the earliest coin was a sixth century Sasanian coin. And the, the latest coin was minted in 881. So that really dates its burial beautifully. Um, it was, a lot of the silver was quite eroded because for some reason it had been packed in bags of salt. So it took a tremendous amount of cleanup to get it to look this good. And when you're at the Gotlands Museum, you can see um, some that's 
beautiful like this and others which is just silver oxide and just a you know a degraded mess interestingly enough the 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 bronze treasure the 20 kilos of bronze treasure which again contains some very very beautiful pieces of uh, work from the slavic land strap hinges and shapes and so on and so forth that was beautifully packaged in a stout wooden chest with lovely strap hinges and you know a, a lock and everything it was treated with which with much greater respect if you will than the silver which was jammed into salt bags um but it it to go into the the treasure hall um of the gotlands museum and be confronted with so much silver and a fair amount of gold as well there's a, definitely been finds of, of gold here on the island but to be confronted with it and to see a, a small portion of the 200,000 coins that have been found here, it, it is really a, a stellar experience. And um, I, I, I really do want to encourage students of the era to visit Gotland because it, it, it is such a beautiful island. It's so concentrated in its richness. And just by spending an afternoon in the, in the Gotland's museum, your eyes will be opened, you'll go away with so much and so much inspiration, so much admiration for these people. So how does the government there feel about metal detectoring? It is not permitted. Okay, because I was going to say, this to me no. would seem like Scotland would be like, you know, San Francisco in 1848, you know, like some kind of gold. Terry, you, Terry, you will appreciate this. You will appreciate this. Um, I, I live in in Brighton Visby, which is a very beautiful medieval town, so UNESCO World Heritage Site. One cannot dig in their garden deeper than 30 centimeters without an observer. Wow. So it's almost like planting a rose. You need to be careful not to come across any treasure. So that's what it's like. There's so much under the ground. Um, so, I mean, obviously when this farmer found, you know, discovered a part of the hoard, of course, the museum came back with you know detection materials you know with and they they found the rest of it but um yes it's 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 just it's too much upon the ground and as i said there's a uh in the gotlands museum there's there's a, a wonderful longhouse on again on the east coast called stavgard viking era a longhouse and school children on a school outing found a rabbit you know literally kicking silver out of its burrow I mean, getting rid of this rubbish, it did not, I mean, it's everywhere. That was in 1975. And there's more, there's found, finds are discovered all the time. It's, 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 there's so much here. And it makes it exciting. I mean, when you're in the, in the countryside, I mean, you know, you never know what you're walking on. Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting too. Maybe to point out for our audience, I mean, some some of who will will know this, who are familiar with the Viking Age. But when you kind of look at just this mass of of material like this and think, wow, you know, okay, these must have been really rich people, or you just like, why do they have so much of this stuff? And then when you add on to it, I mean, not only like the arm rings or neck rings or whatever we're looking at, but also the silver dirhams you're talking about, which are you know actual coins. But that even with the coins, you know, for for these people, it was it was about the weight of all of this stuff. So yes. it is literally about the mass of it, not the actual like value of a coin. Yeah. Like this one is twenty five yeah. cents or whatever. And so the wealth yeah. of it is just in how yeah. much of it you can, and, you can get a hold. And all, of it. all of this jewelry is pretty much made to weight, so that you know, which was very typical that that the the jewelry was made so that it was very easy to to say okay. This is half a mark. This right. is a full mark, and so on and so forth. And of course, there's so much hack jewelry right. um, out there because you know you needed small bits to pay for small purchases. And of course, many coins were conveniently scored; they had crosses on them. So, not the dirhams, of course, but the, m many of the beautiful coins, of course, ended up as jewelry, as sort of bracteate. So, so the the coins were admired just for their own beauty. And this, uh, many of the dirhams are very um, are very lovely. Yeah. Uh, to look at but yes the the jewelry here in the spillings hoard unlike the dirhams which are uh, you know from from uh, from arabia the, the jewelry much of this jewelry if not all of it is actually of gotlandic make and there's you know certain certain jewelry designs which are very distinct i mean uh, 
you I'm sure are aware of our beautiful crystal balls, which are in silver mounts. I mean, the crystal came from probably India, but the the the, the mounts are are of silver mounts, which are made here. And there's some beautiful example of this crystal jewelry in the museum as well. So there was a, a very skilled silversmiths working here, not just these simple uh, designs here, but some very elaborate, beautiful pieces as well. So you mentioned um, the the one saga uh, a little bit ago, um, and I mean you're a writer. So well, what are the what are the written sources uh, for Gotland that we have for say the, the Viking Age period in particular? Uh, well, there's the 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 Gucci saga, which is very very brief, was written down. Uh, quite late in 1220, so it's contemporary with Snorri, uh, and it's it's it, it it does tell the story of of the foundation myth of of Shelver, the first person, and then it goes on in a not exactly coherent manner about making um, a treaty with the the king of the sphere. Um, we need to be reminded that Sweden. Um, in in those days, this, a large portion of the southern part of the peninsula of Sweden was actually Danish. So the king of the sphere, the king of the Swedes, was essentially his, he was sort of the king in Uppsala, as I refer to him in my books, the king in Uppsala. So he was the king of the sphere. He's not even named um, during this. There's an elaborate um, story about the old crafty Gotlander who goes to negotiate with the king of the sphere who remains unnamed through it. Um, it's it's short, but it does it does cover um, a number of things that tell us a little bit more. Unfortunately, because it is so late, you know, 1220, it's it's um it, it you know again the, the difficulty when you do not have scribes writing things down. So so my understanding from basically what I've read uh, with the, what I like to call the Eastern Vikings, forgive the nomenclature, but it's just like a nice blanket term. Uh, the Svear and then the Goti, so the Goti, so Gotland was originally settled by what we might consider Goths, right? Uh, and then the Svear were actually native to Sweden. Uh, Correct. And so, and Correct. I don't know, help, help me out here. Where had, So how did the, the settlement <laughs> well, you, of Sweden, what, what do, do we you, know? Do you want to talk about Beowulf? <laughs> I mean, have have either of you been aware of that um, theory and, you know, ongoing scholarship that Beowulf was possibly a goot and not a geet? Because at Stavgard, where I, I just mentioned, which is the uh, where the 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 rabbit horde was kicked up, there is a very impressive longhouse remains uh, that certain scholars um it, at the University of Uppsala, uh, believe that actually could have been uh, uh, Beowulf's Hall, and that this enormous, absolutely the biggest mound that we have, which is not far away, burial mound, is his burial mound. And this is based on uh, both linguistic evidence and topographic evidence, because talking about the whales passing and so on and so forth, because there were whales in the Baltic um, in Beowulf's time. So this is this is a, another very interesting <laughs> uh, pathway of discussion is, you know, could Beowulf have been a goot and not a geet? So there's, yeah, so uh, it, is, it, is, it is fascinating to think about. One of the things I, I, I will say is that the Beowulf story, because of course it was written in Old English, and is the foundational, one of the great foundational pieces of the English language, is not well known here, unfortunately. And that is something that I would certainly like to see corrected because it is really the story of Sweden and Denmark and possibly Gotland. I mean, Gotland was independent for so many you know, centuries, but but I would like to see, I'm, I'm happy to see this interest in, in Beowulf because I want people to know the story um, here. And so that to me, it's it's worth it to, to learn more, to discuss it, and to look at it, just just for that, because it's 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 not just a story belonging to to England; it's a story belonging to to the Norse as well. Yeah, definitely. And for all you out there, don't watch the movie. Read Seamus Haney's <laughs> translation; it's the best still. 
I I like Kenneth Raffles myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. It was the first one I read as a young girl, and I love that translation. But yeah, I I, I like Hoyt. I don't like starting with so. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't capture the excitement for me. It's my great respect for Seamus Haney as a poet, but I like the I like Simon Raffles. I really do. <laughs> So are right. the things that we saw these things uh, that are the guests that you're inviting in August and September, this is stuff that they will see on their tours? Yes, yes. So I am uh, hosting two seven-day tours of Gotland. These are my readers. They're coming from around the world, including um, many great readers from Australia. Um, I love my Australian readers. I, they are deeply, deeply interested um, in in Gotland and in, in the era, so so I will be taking them. Um, we'll obviously be going to the Gotland's museum, but I will be taking them out into the countryside and looking at the the landscapes, which inspired scenes in my books. They're going to go to the the, the site where the the hall of my uh, main characters stood. Um, we'll I'll be taking them to the Shelvers' grave, which is a really beautiful ship setting stone. We'll be you know looking at topography. We'll be looking at uh, examples of of late middle age um, Viking, uh, late middle age homesteads, medieval farms and homesteads, which are very, very similar because Scotland changed glacially slowly when it came, when Linnaeus came here in 1741, he was astounded at how primitive Gotland was. I mean, he, he spent the summer here in 1741 and, and classifying uh, insects and, and all the wildflowers and everything. But he, he said it was just like, I mean, he was, of course, a very well-educated cosmopolitan, you know, Stockholmer. And to come here and he felt he'd gone back to 1200, you know. So think we have many things um, that are four or 500 years old, which really are very similar to what what the ninth century looked like. So I'll be taking them to special, you know, farms and, and um, landscapes that like that. I'm going to be in Denmark in August, and now I feel bad that I'm going to be so close and yet. Oh, so far. oh. <laughs> you need you need to join us. <laughs> yeah. It'd be just yeah, a quick so. quick pun jump for you, Terry. Just right. head yes, on over right. just one day. Yeah. No, do yeah, do I'm, come. I'm... Both of you do come. It's a richly rewarding, um, a richly rewarding trip, and um, it it it's eye opening and and magnificent. And we have unparalleled treasures. We really do. I mean the the contributions that Gotland has made to Norse studies cannot be um, overstated, you know, so uh, please come. Uh, your your mention of the cosmopolitan Stockholmer, uh, it, it triggered a, so I, I grew up in France and, and uh, there's a, a funny story that is told there about uh, Rene Descartes, because there's a famous story from uh, well, when Rene Descartes was alive. And so there was a Swedish princess, and I, I don't recall her name, but she um, was heir to the throne, and and she wanted to learn from the, the greatest minds in the world. And so she asked her her court, she said, hey, who, what are the greatest, who can I learn from? Who's the greatest mind in the world? They said, well, it's obviously Rene Descartes from France. Oh, okay, well, you know, call for him, and I'd like to learn from him. So she invited Rene Descartes to, to Sweden, to learn from him and he went over there you know saying oh sure i'll go i'll go be your instructor for a while and she made him follow her rigorous routine which was get up at dawn go horse riding go you know bow hunting da 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 and after about two weeks of this Rene descartes was just he was so he was exhausted. So, so exhausted that he was like i have to go home and he took a ship home and when he arrived in paris he actually died <laughs> Our apologies. <laughs> yes. No, this is like our Crown Princess Victoria. She, you know, served in the military. She's a wonderful equestrian. Right. It's a, a, the outdoor life is the way to go here. So this was Rene Descartes, who was, I would, I would consider him to be the cosmopolitan. Yes, right. <laughs> right. Uh, well, Linnaeus fortunately was of hardy stock. He had to be because he was a naturalist and he was always out hiking. But um he was again, he he felt he he'd been transported back hundreds of years so and that's part of the charm of the island you really it's really really easy you know we we have every august we have an incredible first week of august an incredible metal in the medieval week which actually commemorates the huge battle in 1361 where valdemar otterdog a danish king came and and 
slaughtered 2,000 Gotlandic soldiers with his trained mercenaries and took over the city and then left two days later and never returned. But the, a, a battle is reenacted outside the walls, you know, every year with a very large version of it with reenactors coming from around the world every four years. And one of them was, was 2019 when I made pretty extensive film of that. There's nothing like doing that in the actual location where it happened. Right. I mean, reenactors want to come and do this because it's, you know, you're on the ground, you're where these battles were fought. Um, it's, it is, um, quite, quite wonderful. And the, the, the town wall is in an amazing state of, uh, preservation that it, 27 of the 29 original towers are still there. And, and the town is so charming and so beautiful. So there's, there's much to lure you here. Including yourself. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in the show notes, we'll put a, a link to your website so people can go and um, thank you. If they're not familiar, then they can take a look at what you're doing there. I, for one, as a person who makes this all the time and am about to eat it after this show, was happy to see a recipe for skier. <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> they sell it at Safeway now. Oh, uh, yeah, they sell it. Yes, at, yeah, it's and, become Icelandic yeah. skier. Yeah. I, I I was just going to say I think it's because the popularity of trips to Iceland is that now you know so many people have been to Iceland, um, which is so wonderful as well. But but you you see it either that or quark on the breakfast table all the time, and so people have brought it back to the states. So yep, and it's very good. easy to make. <laughs> good for you. It's the great irony of the great irony of history, right? Vikings were the vacationing Scandinavians that went everywhere. And because of that, they're now building a tourism industry off of it to get people to come to them. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's genius. No, no. As, as long as we don't turn into Dubrovnik, I never want that to happen to Visby. So it's very important that Visby remains Visby right. and doesn't become the setting for that kind of tourism so yeah mm. yeah exactly mm -hmm. all right great well wonderful it's been wonderful having you on the show this has been very illuminating for me because goat lands a little bit of a blind spot for me uh i've, I've read about it but you know this was a nice i, uh, I expect you book. here cj i expect yeah. you here so <laughs> let me know when you're coming i'll meet you at the dock so absolutely <laughs> awesome <laughs> you want to come on the ferry because you want to approach it the way they did you know so yeah all oh, right yeah but if you fly from stockholm it's you know 30 minutes so which is what i do but if you want to come uh you know on the ferry that's the way to approach any island so but thank you both it's really been a very enjoyable hour thank you very much for having me on absolutely this has been great love it